Section 7 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 10, European Leaders, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Cavour, Part 3. Meanwhile, the Allied armies had defeated the Austrians at Magenta and Solferino, and Louis Napoleon had effected the celebrated treaty with Austria at Villafranca, arranging for a confederation of all the Italian states under the papal protectorate, and the cession of Lombardy to Sardinia. This inconclusive result greatly disgusted all the Italian patriots. Cavour resigned at once, but soon after was induced to resume his post at the head of affairs. Venice and Verona were still in Austrian hands. As the Prussians showed signs of uneasiness, it is probable that Louis Napoleon did not feel justified in continuing the war, in which he had nothing further to gain. At all events, he now withdrew. Garibaldi was exceedingly indignant at the desertion of France, and opposed bitterly the cession of Nice and Savoy, by which he was brought in conflict with Cavour, who felt that Italy could well afford to part with a single town and a barren strip of mountain territory for the substantial advantages it had already gained by the defeat of the Austrian armies. The people of the Italian states, however, repudiated the French emperor's arrangements for them, and one by one Modena, Tuscany, Parma, and the Romagna, the upper tier of the Papal States, formally voted for annexation to the Kingdom of Sardinia, and the King, nothing loath, received them into his fold in March 1860. This result was in great measure due to the Baron Ricasoli of Tuscany, an independent country gentleman and wine-grower who had taken an active interest in politics, and had been made dictator of Tuscany when her Grand Duke fled at the outbreak of the war. Ricasoli obstinately refused either to recall the Grand Duke or to submit to the Napoleonic program, but insisted on annexation to Sardinia, and the other duchies followed. Garibaldi now turned his attention to the liberation of Naples and Sicily from the yoke of Ferdinand, which had become intolerable. As early as 1851, Mr. Gladstone, on a visit to Naples, wrote to Lord Aberdeen that the government of Ferdinand was an outrage on religion, civilization, humanity, and decency. He had found the prisons full of state prisoners in the vilest condition, and other iniquities which were a disgrace to any government. The people had attempted by revolution again and again to shake off the accursed yoke, and had failed. Their only hope was from without. It was the combined efforts of three men that freed southern Italy from the yoke. Mazzini, who opened the drama by recognizing in Sicily a fitting field of action. Cavour by his diplomatic intrigues, and Garibaldi by his bold and even rash enterprises. The patriotism of these three men is universally conceded, but they held one another in distrust and dislike, although in different ways they worked for the same end. Mazzini wanted to see a republican form of government established throughout Italy, which Cavour regarded as chimerical. Garibaldi did not care what government was established, provided Italy was free and united. Cavour, though he disapproved of the rashness of Garibaldi, was willing to make use of him, provided he was not entrusted with too high a command. Moreover, there were mutual jealousies, each party wishing to get the supreme direction of affairs. The first step was taken in 1860 by Garibaldi, in his usual fashion. Having gathered about a thousand men, he set sail from Genoa to take part in the Sicilian Revolution. Cavour, when he heard of the expedition, or rather raid, led by Garibaldi upon Sicily in aid of the insurrectionists, ostensibly opposed it, and sent an admiral to capture him and bring him back to Turin. But secretly he favored it. 
the government of turin held aloof from the expedition out of regard to foreign powers who were indignant that the peace of europe should be disturbed by a military adventurer in their eyes half bandit and half sailor lord john russell however in england gave his encouragement and assistance by the directions given to admiral mundy who interposed his ships between the neapolitan cruisers and the soldiers of garibaldi then marching on the coast france remained neutral austria had been crippled and prussia and russia were too distant to care much about a matter which did not affect them so with his troop of well-selected men garibaldi succeeded in landing on the sicilian shores he at once issued his manifesto to the people and soon had the satisfaction to see his forces increased he first came in contact with the neapolitan troops among the mountains at calatafimi and defeated them so that they retired to palermo the capital of sicily could have been easily defended but aided by a popular uprising garibaldi was soon master of the city and took up his quarters in the royal palace as dictator of sicily where he lived very quietly astonishing the viceroy's servants by his plain dinners of soup and vegetables without wine his wardrobe was then composed of two pairs of gray trousers an old felt hat two red shirts and a few pocket handkerchiefs on the seventeenth of july eighteen sixty garibaldi left palermo and embarked for milazzo on the northwest coast of sicily where he gained another victory which opened to him the city of messina the neapolitan government deemed all further resistance on the island of sicily useless and recalled its troops for the defense of naples at messina garibaldi was joined by father gavazzi the finest order of italy who had seceded from the romish church and who threw his whole soul into the cause of italian independence garibaldi now had a force of twenty-five thousand men under his orders and prepared to invade the peninsula on the seventeenth of august he landed at tormina with a part of his army and marched on reggio a strong castle which he took by assault this success gave him a basis of operations on the mainland the residue of his troops were brought over from messina and his triumphal march to naples immediately followed not a hand being raised against him the young king francis the second fled as the conqueror approached or rather i should say deliverer for garibaldi had no hard battles to fight when once he had landed on the shores of italy his popularity was so great and the enthusiasm of the people was so unbounded that armies melted away or retired as he approached with his calabrian sugar-loaf hat and instead of fighting he was obliged to go through the ordeal of kissing all the children and being hugged by all the women naples was now without a government and garibaldi had no talent for organization the consequence was that the city was torn by factions and yet garibaldi refused to adopt vigorous measures i am grieved he said at the waywardness of my children yet he took no means to repress disorders he even reaped nothing but ingratitude from those he came to deliver not a single garibaldian was received into a private house while three thousand of his men were lying sick and wounded on the stones of the jesuit college how was it to be expected that anything else could happen among a people so degraded as the neapolitans one hundred years behind the people of north italy in civilization in intelligence in wealth and in morals in everything that qualifies a people for liberty or self-government in the midst of the embarrassments which perplexed and surrounded the dictator mazzini made his appearance at naples garibaldi however would have nothing to do with the zealous republican and held his lot with the royalists as he was now the acknowledged representative of the sardinian government 
Mazzini was even requested to leave Italy, which he refused to do. Whether it was from jealousy that Garibaldi held aloof from Mazzini, vastly his intellectual superior, or from the conviction that his republican ideas were utterly impracticable, cannot be known. We only know that he sought to unite the north and south of Italy under one government as a preparation for the conquest of central Italy, which he was impatient to undertake at all hazards. At last the king of Naples prepared to make one decisive struggle for his throne. From his retreat at Gaeta he rallied his forces, which were equal to those of Garibaldi, about forty thousand men. On the first of October was fought the Battle of Volturno, as to which Garibaldi, after fierce fighting, was enabled to send his exultant dispatch, complete victory along the whole line. Francis II retired to a strong fortress of Gaeta to await events. Meanwhile, on the news of Garibaldi's successes, King Victor Emmanuel set out from Turin with a large army to take possession of the throne of Naples, which Garibaldi was ready to surrender. But the king must needs pass through the states of the church, a hazardous undertaking since Rome was under the protection of the French troops. Louis Napoleon had given an ambiguous assent to this movement, which, however, he declined to assist, and defeating the papal troops under General La Mauricière, Victor Emmanuel pushed on to Naples. As the king of Piedmont advanced from the north, he had pretty much the same experience that Garibaldi had in his march from the south. He met with no serious resistance. On passing the Neapolitan frontier he was met by Garibaldi with his staff, who laid down his dictatorship at his sovereign's feet, the most heroic and magnanimous act of his life. This was also his proudest hour, since he had accomplished his purpose. He had freed Naples, and had united the south with the north. On the 10th of October the people of the two Sicilies voted to accept the government of Victor Emmanuel, and the king entered Naples, November 7th, in all the pomp of sovereignty. Garibaldi's task was ended on surrendering his dictatorship, but he had one request to make of Victor Emmanuel, to whom he had given a throne. He besought him to dismiss Cavour, and to be himself allowed to march on Rome, for he hated the Pope with a terrible hatred, and called him Antichrist, both because he oppressed his subjects and was hostile to the independence of Italy. But Victor Emmanuel could not grant such an absurd request. He was even angry and the liberator of Naples retired to his island home with only fifteen shillings in his pocket. This conduct on the part of the king may seem like ingratitude, but what else could he do? He doubtless desired that Rome should be the capital of his dominions as much as Garibaldi himself, but the time had not come. Victor Emmanuel could not advance on Rome and Venice with an army of red shirts. He could not overcome the armed veterans of Austria and France as Garibaldi had prevailed over the discontented troops of Francis II he must await his opportunity. Besides, he had his hands full to manage the affairs of Naples, where every element of anarchy had accumulated. To add to the embarrassments of Victor Emmanuel, he was compelled to witness the failing strength and fatal illness of his prime minister. The great statesman was dying from overwork. Although no man in Europe was capable of such gigantic tasks as Cavour assumed, yet even he had to succumb to the laws of nature. He took no rest and indulged in no pleasures, but devoted himself body and soul to the details of his office and the cause of patriotism. He had to solve the most difficult problems, both political and commercial. He was busy with the finances of the kingdom, then in great disorder, and especially had he to deal with the blended ignorance, tyranny, and corruption that the Bourbon kings of Naples had bequeathed to the miserable country which for more than a century they had so disgracefully misgoverned. All this was too much for the overworked statesman who was always at his post in the legislative chamber, in his office with the secretaries, and in the council chamber of the cabinet. 
He died in June 1861 and was buried, not in a magnificent mausoleum, but among his family relations at Satana. Cavour did not, however, pass away until he saw the union of all Italy, except Venice and Rome, under the scepter of Victor Emmanuel. Lombardy had united with Piedmont soon after the victory at Solferino by the suffrages of its inhabitants. At Turin, deputies from the states of Italy, except Venice and Rome, chosen by the people, assembled and formally proclaimed Italy to be free. The population of four millions, which comprised the subjects of Victor Emmanuel on his accession to the throne, had in about thirteen years increased to twenty-two millions, and in February 1861 Victor Emmanuel was by his Senate and Chamber of Deputies proclaimed King of Italy, although he wisely forbore any attempt actually to annex the Venetian and Papal States. Rome and Venice were still outside. The Pope remained inflexible to any reforms, any changes, any improvements. Non possimus was all that he deigned to say to the ambassadors who advised concessions. On the 7th of September, 1860, Victor Emmanuel sent an envoy to Rome to demand from His Holiness the dismissal of his foreign troops, which demand was refused. Upon this the king ordered an army to enter the papal provinces of Umbria and the marches. In less than three weeks the campaign was over, and General Lamoricière, who commanded the papal troops, was compelled to surrender. Austria, Prussia, and Russia protested, but Victor Emmanuel paid little heed to the protest, or to the excommunications which were hurled against him. The Emperor of the French found it politic to withdraw his ambassador from Turin, but adhered to his policy of non-intervention, and remained a quiet spectator. The English government, on the other hand, justified the government of Turin in thus freeing Italian territory from foreign troops. Garibaldi was not long contented with his retirement at Caprera. In July 1862, he rallied around him a number of followers, determined to force the king's hand, and to complete the work of unity by advancing on Rome as he had on Naples. His rashness was opposed by the Italian government, wisely awaiting riper opportunity, who sent against him the greatest general of Italy, La Marmora, and Garibaldi was taken prisoner at Aspromonte. The king determined to do nothing further without the support of the representatives of the nation, but found it necessary to maintain a large army, which involved increased taxation, to which, however, the Italians generously submitted. In 1866, while Austria was embroiled with Prussia, Victor Emmanuel, having formed an alliance with the northern powers, invaded Venetia, and in the settlement between the two German powers the Venetian province fell to the king of Italy. In 1867, Garibaldi made another attempt on Rome, but was arrested near Lake Thrasimene and sent back to Caprera. Again he left his island, landed on the Tuscan coast, and advanced to Rome with his body of volunteers, and was again defeated and sent back to Caprera. The government dealt mildly with this prince of filibusters in view of his past services and his unquestioned patriotism. His errors were those of the head and not of the heart. He was too impulsive, too impatient, and too rash in his schemes for Italian liberty. It was not until Louis-Napoleon was defeated at Sedan that the French troops were withdrawn from Rome, and the way was finally opened for the occupation of the city by the troops of Victor Emmanuel in 1870. A Roman plebiscite had voted for the union of all Italy under the constitutional rule of the House of Savoy. From 1859 to 1865 the capital of the kingdom had been Turin, the principal city of Piedmont. With the enlargement of the realm, the latter year saw the court removed to Florence in Tuscany. 
but now that all the states were united under one rule rome once again after long centuries had passed became the capital of italy and the temporal power of the pope passed away forever on the fall of napoleon the third in eighteen seventy italian nationality was consummated and victor emmanuel reigned as a constitutional monarch over united italy to his prudence honesty and good sense the liberation of italy was in no small degree indebted he was the main figure in the drama of italian independence if we accept cavour whose transcendent abilities were devoted to the same cause for which mazzini and garibaldi less discreetly labored it is remarkable that such great political changes were made with so little bloodshed italian unity was affected by constitutional measures by the voice of the people and by fortunate circumstances more than by the sword the revolutions which seated the king of piedmont on the throne of united italy were comparatively bloodless battles indeed were fought during the whole career of victor emmanuel and in every part of italy but those of much importance were against the austrians against foreign domination the civil wars were slight and unimportant compared with those which ended in the expulsion of austrian soldiers from the soil of italy the civil wars were mainly popular insurrections being marked by neither cruelty nor fanaticism indeed they were the uprising of the people against oppression and misrule the iron heel which had for so many years crushed the aspirations of the citizens of venice of milan and rome was finally removed only by the successive defeats of austrian armies by prussia and france although the political unity and independence of italy have been affected it is not yet a country to be envied the weight of taxation to support the government is an almost intolerable burden no country in the world is so heavily taxed in proportion to its resources and population great ignorance is still the misfortune of italy especially in the central and southern provinces education is at a low ebb and only a small part of the population can even read and write except in piedmont the spiritual despotism of the pope still enslaves the bulk of the people who are either roman catholics with medieval superstitions or infidels with hostility to all religion based on the holy scriptures nothing there as yet flourishes like the civilization of france germany and england and yet it is to be hoped that a better day has dawned on a country endeared to christendom for its glorious past and its classic associations it is a great thing that a liberal and enlightened government now unites all sections of the country and that a constitutional monarch with noble impulses reigns in the eternal city rather than a bigoted ecclesiastical pontiff versed to all changes and improvements having nothing in common with european sovereigns but patronage of art which may be pagan in spirit rather than christian the great drawback to italian civilization at present is the foolish race of the nation with great military monarchies in armies and navies which occupies the energies of the country rather than a development of national resources in commerce agriculture and the useful arts authorities allison's history of europe lives of cavour mazzini garibaldi fife's modern europe mackenzie's history of the nineteenth century biography of marshal radetsky annual register biography of charles albert ellesmere as quoted by allison memoirs of prince metternich carlo botta's history of italy end of section seven